Well, today we want to continue our uh, journey through our uh, statement of faith from the UMJC. And uh, we are still in our um, uh, uh, statement about, uh, about Israel here. Uh, and uh, we have this sentence, In gracious love God gave to Israel the Holy Torah as a covenantal way of life. And we talked about that last week. Uh, and uh, now uh, we want to talk about where it says, And the Holy Land of Israel as an inheritance and pledge of the blessing of the world uh, to come. The land of Israel. And so certainly uh, Israel is uh, a very important issue and a very important uh, topic for us. And if you look at the statement carefully, you see here that Israel is Israel. The Jewish people are called to be the first fruits of a renewed humanity. Uh, the Torah is uh, given uh, to us as a covenantal way of life and the land as an inheritance of pledge of blessings in the world to come. So what that statement is really saying to us is that there is a relationship between the people, the way of life, and the land. And that you can't have one out of three uh, or two out of three. It's got to be three for three, okay? Uh, and, uh, and what I mean by that is if we understand uh, the Hebrew Scriptures and we understand the calling of Israel, the calling of the Jewish people, we will understand the calling of a particular way of life and an understanding of the land. And you'll notice if you are one who reads up on current trends and theological kinds of things, you know that oftentimes people that believe that the land is of no, no spiritual significance today often are linked to the belief that the people of Israel are of no spiritual significance today and that the Torah is of no spiritual significance today. You will find the people that champion the fact that uh, there is no Torah at all, you know, uh, uh, at all, champion oftentimes will champion the fact that today in this world, the Jewish people are of no spiritual significance and that in today's world, the land is of no spiritual significance. Now, some people <laughs> who hold uh, that the Jewish people have a significance in the future then hold that the land has a spiritual significance in the future uh, and, uh, and perhaps uh, the Torah as well. So these are all linked together. Now, again, if you are uh, folks that are aware of uh, current trends among believers, you know then that uh, there is a definite move among believers in Yeshua away from the land promises to Israel. Now, you know, just 10 years ago, I could not have said that. Just 10 years ago, could not have said that. But today, it is an amazing uh, thing to witness that uh, among uh, many uh, leaders of evangelical uh, congregations and Bible-believing denominations, uh, 
hold to what we call a, a new narrative. That means a new story of the Middle East and a new story of uh, Israel uh, and the nations and Israel and the Arab people and the uh, Palestinian people. So uh, what we have today is much more of uh, uh, a, a feeling that Israel uh, uh, does not have a, uh, a legitimate right uh, to self-determination uh, in the land of Israel, uh, and that the unique, um, the unique relationship of the land and the Jewish people uh, no longer applies. Uh, and so it's important for us, of all people, to have a proper understanding uh, of uh, what the scriptures have to say about these issues and then uh, about how we apply them uh, to our lives uh, today. So we've talked about the calling of the Jewish people. We've talked about the uh, a Torah and uh, the way of life, the covenantal way of life that God has given to us. Now we want to understand that the land is intrinsic to the covenant. Okay, So you may be familiar with some of these passages, but right from the get-go in uh, Genesis chapter 12, we know that God called Abram to a land, a physical piece of real estate. Okay? In uh, chapter 12, uh, we read here, uh, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. Well, let's stop there. To the land that I will show you. That's a great teaching in and of itself. He doesn't actually tell him where. This says, follow me. Kind of like Yeshua, you know, calling out his disciples. Oh, that's another sermon for a different day. But uh, to the land that I will show you, okay? Uh, and so we see that Abram is called to go to a land. Now, if you go down to verse 7, it says, And the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land, okay, you and your descendants. So we see, actually, if we go backwards, here um, to verse uh, 5 and 6. I should have read 5 and 6 and 7. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Okay. Uh, now there's something interesting about this. Uh, first of all, it's interesting to note, if you go back to chapter 11, to the beginning of chapter 11, before the land, before God tells Abram to go to the land, we usually pass over this because you really got to be observing the text to uh, get this. It says uh, in verse 2, you know, these are now, uh, you know, the sons of Noah and their descendants and so on. Notice it says, And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now that's interesting. They journeyed east. Okay. So, Shinar is Mesopotamia. Okay, that's what that is. Shinar is Babylon. So that means they had to be west to travel east. Okay? So it's interesting. You got to wonder, I'll just say wonder, where was west? 
that they traveled east to get there. What's interesting is that in the scriptures, well, actually, even if you go back, when Adam and Eve leave Eden, what direction do they go? They go east. John Steinbeck didn't make that up, okay? They go east of Eden. Here, they go east to go to Shinar, right? We know that Canaan is located certainly west of uh, Mesopotamia. And so it's just an interesting observation that uh, it seems that the locus of uh, direction, may I suggest, is from the land of Canaan. And the directions are told from that perspective. So that's interesting. Okay. All right. Uh, so we see that Abram goes here. Now, what's interesting is what direction does Abram go to get from Ur of the Chaldees to Canaan. He goes west. And interestingly enough, from what I've read, that is the opposite direction of, the, of migration from the Fertile Crescent outward. And that most would go toward Mesopotamia. But Abram goes the opposite direction. So it's, it's another interesting observation that you can draw all kinds of nice devotional truths from. But anyway, so he goes this direction and he comes to uh, this land. The point is for us is that to his descendants, I will give this land. And we read that again uh, here in verse 14 of chapter 13 in the next chapter. And the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward, southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Okay? And then he says, Arise, walk about the land through uh, its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Okay? So Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar uh, to the Lord. All right? Now, to save some time, and I think we may have read this before, in chapter 26 and in chapter 28, in chapter 26 and in chapter 28, this promise of land is repeated to Isaac and repeated to Jacob. All right? That's important. Uh, Isaac and Jacob. Okay? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if we turn over to uh, Exodus chapter 6, when the Jewish people are, have left the land and they're slaves in Egypt, in Exodus chapter 6, we read here, among the promises that God says where he's going to deliver the people out of Egypt, he says in verse 8, uh, Exodus chapter 6 and verse 8, And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to, your, give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, there you go. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. All right? Okay, so we see here that the goal of coming out of Egypt is to get to the land. And the land is called a possession. Now, you see the word possession in lots of places. The word possession means that they were called to take this land. And uh, from what I've read... Uh, in the context of ancient treaties and covenantal relationships, 
it was, it's uh, understood to be a gift. It's understood to be a gift. And we read in many passages, I will give this land to you as a possession. Okay? But the point is, we see it's called to be a possession. They're supposed to take it. Okay? All right. Uh, and, uh, and so we see here uh, very clearly in verse 8, uh, this land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You want to remember that even the reason that God is taking them out of Egypt is because of the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Back in, you know, back in Exodus chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, when the people cry out, it says God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he redeems them out of Egypt because of the, because of the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's going to take them to uh, uh, Israel, uh, Canaan. Uh, and really it's back there because... Before they were enslaved in Egypt, they were living there. They were already had been there and they left, right? And Abraham actually owned property there already. Uh, and so uh, God promises that he's going to bring them uh, to the land, right? Now, after the Jewish people are redeemed out of Egypt and they walk through the sea on dry ground, the first thing they do is sing a song. And this song is one of a number of songs that really give thanks uh, 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 to God and really teach about the promises of God to uh, the people. So in Exodus chapter 15, in verses 16 and 17 and 18, these are very important uh, verses uh, of uh, 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 what God says he's going to do. In a way, it's almost like a paradigm. Um, we see here, uh, terror and dread shall fall upon them. Speaking of the inhabitants of, well, be beginning in verse 15, I guess. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembled, trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm, they are motionless as stone. Until thy people pass over, O Lord, until the people uh, whom thou uh, hast purchased, that will bring them and plant them in the mountain of uh, thine inheritance, the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thy dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever uh, and ever. And so here we see uh, that the people... Uh, have been purchased. They belong to God, this people, Israel. And he's going to plant them, look what it says, in the mountain of God's inheritance. So it's interesting that here we see uh, the mountain, speaking of Mount Zion, uh, this is where they're, they're planted, uh, and this is where the sanctuary uh, is going to be, that this is called God's inheritance. Now, the word inheritance uh, is an interesting word, and it's used, as we'll see uh, oftentimes, for the land being called an inheritance. Inheritance denotes relationship. It's one thing to simply take possession of something or to be given a gift. It's another thing to inherit something. You inherit something from someone. There is an understanding of relationship. And so the word inheritance is used, obviously, uh, as a metaphor for God's relationship to this land that there is a unique relationship between God and that piece of property that's still there, right? 
So that's why it's called, of course, the Holy Land. All right? Uh, it is a land that indeed uh, belongs to God. You read in a passage like uh, Leviticus chapter 25, there in verse 23, that the land is mine, your aliens and sojourners with me. All right? So that's quite clear. The land is indeed God's uh, inheritance. And then it says, The place, O Lord, uh, which thou hast made for thy dwelling. It's the place that God has chosen where he is going to physically dwell. Yes, God is everywhere, but it's the place where he is going to manifest himself via a a temple, via space, via uh, space-time history, okay? Uh, And so then it says, The sanctuary, O Lord, which thou, uh, which thy hands have established. He calls the place the sanctuary, right? So it is the place, it is the place of God's dwelling. And then it says, The Lord shall reign forever and ever. It is the place of God's dwelling with the people where he dwells and reigns. That's the vision. That's the goal of having been brought out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. The goal is to dwell in this land that is called God's place, God's sanctuary, where God would rule forever. That's the vision. Okay? That is the vision. Now, the land is, uh, is called an inheritance. Uh, and, uh, you know, it says that in lots of, pa- like almost hundreds of passages. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 3 and verse 28 is a good one. In Numbers chapter 26 and verse 53, and it just goes on and on. The land is called an inheritance. God has given the land as an inheritance. Now, why is that important? That's important so that we understand that it's not just the creator giving this people a land, but that there is this relationship between God and the people and the land, all right? When you inherit something besides money, okay, like an heirloom or something like something tangible, it means something other than if someone wrapped it up in a box and gave it to you as a birthday present. Someone is handing it down to you. They're entrusting it to you, a family heirloom. And when you see it, when you interact with it in whatever way, you remember the person who gave it to you. There's a relational aspect to the thing. And so it is a possession and it is an inheritance. We could say it is a possession by way of inheritance. Okay? Israel is a possession by way of inheritance to the Jewish people, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's quite clear when you read, especially the book of Joshua, it names the different tribes. It's very physical, speaks of clans, families, groups. It names different uh, geographical locations in the land. It's, it's a real, uh, a real place that is this inheritance where God desires to, to, uh, to dwell. Uh, now, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, there's a great visionary statement about this land. In fact, sometimes I have used it in, in leadership meetings and elsewhere as an illustration of a great vision statement. Here the people are in the desert, right? Uh, and they've been traveling most of their... Most, the people who are hearing Moses say these words, most of them have only known desert, their whole lives. 
and they've never seen the land. Okay? So this is what Moses, Moses describes this land. It says in verse 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 8, For the land, for the Lord is bringing, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees, and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. How's that for a vision statement? How's that for a motivating statement to keep moving forward and to get there, huh? Absolutely. Uh, and that's exactly what it is. It is this, this land of, uh, of their dreams where God desires to dwell indeed with them. Now, go backwards a little bit to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Not only are they, not only is it like uh, God's playground of, of just uh, enjoying this land of satisfaction and, and fruitfulness and, and richness and, and all of that, but we see here, uh, beginning in verse uh, 5 of Deuteronomy 4. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord your God whenever uh, we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as, as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? So not only has he called them to live and dwell in this land, but he has called them to live and dwell with this land with a particular way of life a particular way of life that people can look at and say, wow, that is wisdom and understanding. There is a richness to this life that their God has given them. And what do nations see? They, they see this fruitful land of milk and honey, no oil, except maybe offshore, perhaps, okay? Uh, but milk and honey and richness and satisfaction where people show deference to one another. Just read the Torah and you'll see it. Uh, where people are loving their neighbor as their self uh, and live a dedicated life to God. Wow, that is the picture of how it's supposed to be. Oh, but there's one more specific thing. In chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, we see that when they enter this land, God is going to choose a particular place in the land to dwell with them. In chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, uh, we read here, beginning in verse 10, when you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, 
See, giving you to inherit. He, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security. Then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God shall choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, contributions of your hand, and all your choice votive offerings, which you vow uh, to the Lord. Okay? Uh, uh, then it says, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites who is within your gates, since he has no portion of inheritance, and, and so on. The point being is that God, we see here now, God has promised this land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to dwell in it and to rejoice in it and to get the most out of it in relationship with God who dwells with them in obedience. Because the passage goes on to say, be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings of every uh, cultic place you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses. Now, uh, we could go on. If we were to read now the end of Deuteronomy, we would see, beware, like in the Song of Moses there, beware, because if you're disobedient, you may have to leave the land. And so there is this relationship with Israel in the land, in obedience, with God dwelling in their midst, ruling forever, and that is the vision. So it's very interesting. Uh, the way this is laid out in the, in the, in the uh, Torah in its context, in its actual context, the Torah itself is a visionary statement of how life is to be lived in the land with God dwelling among them and ruling them. Okay? Now, this guides the rest of the scriptures. For example, when you read the book of Joshua, you have the dispersal of the land to the varieties of tribes. In Judges, we see uh, the settlements and, and the sin of the people and how uh, God raises up judge, judges in different, within different tribes and different places in the land. In First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, the people are in the land and fighting enemies, being disobedient, being obedient, losing, winning. God raises up uh, and God raises up uh, leadership. God raises up kings, right? Uh, and the people are, are dwelling in the land, but we see great disobedience. We see some revival. But generally speaking, it's kind of a downward spiral, and ultimately, uh, you know, the people leave the land because of sin, because of disobedience uh, uh, to God, right? God, in the meantime, God had raised up the varieties of prophets warning the people about, uh, about this uh, issue that they are going to have to leave the land because of rebellion uh, uh, to God. Not that God would uh, take away the promise, because turn with me to Leviticus, uh, uh, um, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. This is a very important passage about the land. Very important. So here, Ezekiel is writing to people, generally speaking, to people who are already in Babylon. The uh, deportations had begun in the days of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is writing from Babylon, in fact, okay? And he is, uh, some of uh, the prophet Ezekiel is written to the people still left over in Jerusalem, but the majority of it is written to the people who are there in Babylon. Now, if you and I were living in Babylon at this time, we might think, you know, all is lost. I mean, here we are, we're in Babylon, we're, we've had to leave the land, we didn't heed the prophets, Jeremiah was right after all, you know? What do we, this is, we blew it. 
So Ezekiel writes these words. Beginning in verse uh, 20, actually, beginning in verse 16. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it, that means made it unclean, by their ways and their deeds. By the way, isn't that interesting that the land can be made unclean, right? So you see, there is this interesting, unique relationship between God, the people, and the land. The land is not just a piece of real estate where the, where the action happens to be happening. This land of Israel can become unclean because the people are unclean, okay? It's ritually unclean. See, and so the only way it can be cleansed, just like in this week's Torah portion, is you have to leave the area so the land can be cleansed. And so the people had to go to Babylon so the land could be cleansed from defilement. And so the land became defiled, okay? It wasn't just that the people sinned so they had to leave. The land became defiled. All right. Uh, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way, notice their ways and their deeds. It's not just like air pollution. You know, you know what I mean? Okay. By their immorality, their lack of morality and ethics, their lack of living out Torah. And when you read the prophets, you read over and over again about the kinds of sins that they did. And almost all of it had to do with either uh, pagan idolatry or treating people badly. Okay? Uh, okay. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her, her impurity. Again, like the Torah portion. Therefore, I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they had defiled it with their idols. Also, I scattered them among the nations. And they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. In other words, wow, what a terrible testimony. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Okay, So God is concerned about his testimony. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among uh, the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you uh, in their sight. So God is going to do something to this people as a testimony to the nation so the nations will know who God is. Okay? Now he's going to, now he's going to begin to describe what he's going to do in verse 24. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Notice he calls it your own land. I'm bringing you back to the land that I gave you, the land of your inheritance, the land that you are stewards of, the land that is yours. I'm going to bring you back, okay? Then it says, I'm going to bring you back. Then, then, not before, but then, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. 
this goes back to they had defiled the land. They were defiled, they had defiled the land. We see the terminology of um, clean and unclean is being used here to describe uh, the people going out of the land and coming back to the land, okay? Then it says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, they will not be incalcitrant uh, anymore. I'm going to give you a, a new heart. And then it says in verse 27, And I will put a new spirit within you to cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. What is he going to do? It says, And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people and I will be your God. God says here, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, bring, I'm going to gather you from all over the world and I'm going to bring you back to this land and I am going to empower you via the Ruach HaKodesh, the Spirit of God. I'm going to give you a new heart, tantamount, may I say, to circumcise your heart and give you my Spirit to empower you to live out this way of life in this land, and then it says, and I will be your God. You will be my people, and I will be your God, with God dwelling among them in their midst. In other words, I'm going to do what I said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what I said back in, back in uh, before I brought you out of Egypt, what I said to you when you were about, after I brought you out of Egypt, and you were ready to enter the land, I'm going to do that. Now, when the Jewish people returned from captivity, all of this didn't happen. They returned, but they were very much uh, worshiping like the peoples around them. And uh, they were not walking with God. And even by the time you get to the first century with Yeshua, the priests were being chosen by the Romans. I mean, it was not the way it was supposed to be, even though they had built a another temple, a smaller temple yet, uh, uh, the place where Yeshua uh, dwelt and, and came to, but yet they had to leave again. And so this period of time had not yet, uh, not yet been, uh, been met. Now, if you keep your finger here, because we're not done here in Ezekiel 36, if you go to Jeremiah chapter 31, in Jeremiah 31, you know the passage about the new covenant, where it says in verse 31, Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. See, there are people that will say, you see, this is a different covenant. And because it says it's a new covenant, not like the covenant which they broke, the land promises are no longer applicable. I've read that. Perhaps you've read that. The problem with that is, is that it's speaking specifically about Sinai. And here's a bulletin for us. The land promise was not given at Sinai. The land promise was given way earlier to Abraham in the covenant in, in Genesis chapter 12. Okay? All right. Now, not only that, there's a lot more we could say about that. But the point I wanted to make is, yes, God is going, notice it says, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them on their heart. I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each man and each one his neighbor, 
Each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. May I suggest that that is very similar using different words than exactly what Ezekiel says about bringing them to the land, giving them the spirit of God, causing them to walk in his, in his ways. Causing them to walk in his ways because it's going to be on their heart because he's given them the spirit of God. But you'll notice in uh, Jeremiah, at the end of chapter 31, after, right after he says that this covenant is unbreakable, as long as there's an earth, as long as there is a sun, as long as there is a moon, and as long as there are stars, this covenant will indeed come to pass. Right after he says that, it says in verse 38 of Jeremiah 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. Now, it doesn't say that accidentally. Days are coming, declares the Lord, because it's related to verse 31 with the new covenant. It's part of the new covenant. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther straight ahead to the hill Gareb. Then it will turn to Goa. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. That is speaking about not Zion in our hearts, but the real place. The land of Israel is part of the new covenant passage in Jeremiah 31. And as much as God is going to give us a new covenant, place the Torah in our inward parts, and forgive our sins forevermore, so he is going to restore the land, the physical land of Israel. You can't, you can't be honest with the text and simply pick and choose what you're going to say is going to happen so it fits into your particular theology. Okay? So, that's very important. Now go back to Ezekiel 36, and let's see what it says in the rest of this chapter. It says in verse uh, 29 of Ezekiel 36, when God brings them back to the land, gives them the Ruach HaKodesh, causes Israel to, to, uh, to dwell uh, in his ways, in his land, with God as their physical living God with them. Moreover, I will save you from your uncleanness, and I will call for grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, that you may not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt and the desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. Now, the next verse is really important. And they will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste, desolate and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. To save some time, I won't read the last two verses there. 
So you see that we see the land flourishes very descriptively. And it's like the Garden of Eden. Because what indeed God is doing after the sin of Adam and Eve and after the the failure of the sons of Noah and after the failure uh, of, uh, of Babel, God calls out this man, right? To be the father of this people, to be the first fruits of a renewed people in a renewed land with a renewed way of life. It's all linked together in a renewed, as it were, Eden, a restoration of how it's supposed to be. That's why he says, be fruitful and multiply. That's why the land flourishes and is, and is written about in such great descriptive form. That's what God desires. And you see Israel, the land and the people and the, and the word, the law, all of it, all of it, a package deal is supposed to be something, is like a showcase of the kingdom of God, a showcase of the renewed heaven and earth, a showcase of how it's supposed to be. See? Now, uh, when Yeshua came, when the Messiah came, the beginnings of this took place, right? Uh, we know that uh, a remnant of Israel believed, but still the, the, there was great uh, rebellion. Uh, the majority of people in the land did not believe. And for a variety of that and other reasons, the people left the land once again. But God in his unconditional promise still had and has this hope of people, land, and a word, and a, a Torah, all linked uh, uh, together. And so we are living in a day that theologically people call it a prolepsis. We live in between. We live in between the beginning of the end and the end of the end. And in between the beginning of the end and the end of the end, we see that God has yet called out a remnant of Jewish people. He's called out also those from the nations. And over the course of time, in God's providence, he has been restoring the Jewish people. And in the last 60 to 70 years, or really I'll say 150 years when you really think about it, has been calling out Jewish people once again as believers to go back and in recent history, in Europe, in England, and in Germany, in the middle 1800s, you had quite an outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh in Europe. That is when the Hebrew Christian Alliance was born in 1869. Isn't that interesting? Became later the Messianic Jewish Alliance that we know today. All right? Uh, and since that time, a trickle of Jewish people have been coming to faith. Uh, and uh, since the late 1960s, a, 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 a larger number than really going back to the previous, all the way back to Yeshua in, in uh, numbers, just in, in numbers, which just tells you how paltry it is, that uh, Jewish people have been coming to, to faith. And it is no coincidence that in 1967 that uh, Jerusalem became a unified city uh, at the same time that you have the beginning of that movement of, the, of, uh, of, of uh, Jewish people uh, coming to faith, young Jewish people coming to faith, you have the unification of the city of Jerusalem. Of course, 1948, the establishment of the land and, and everything that took place all the way from the beginning of the 20th century to, to get there. But here's the big question. In the New Covenant, do we see this? Okay, here it is here, but 
it seems that in the New Covenant, uh, it is silent, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to stop here, and uh, next week we will understand how the New Covenant is indeed not silent in uh, understanding this promise of land uh, to Israel. But let me just uh, stop here and say this. So what is the uh, end game? What does this mean to us? What it means to us is that we need to recognize that we of all people are called to, um, just as we are called to uh, bring the message of Yeshua to our people. And just as we are called to live in such a way as to show that God is faithful to Israel in, in, in the coming of the Messiah, so we need to be people who fan the flames that God is still faithful to the Jewish people uh, via the land of Israel. And so therefore, uh, we need to uh, stand up and be counted among the rest of, of Israel in saying that uh, God is indeed not finished with bringing Jewish people to the Lord, but he is not finished with, the, with, his, with his program for the ages, which, as we'll see next week, has plenty to do with the land uh, of Israel. The land is intrinsic to the, to the whole story of what God wants to do uh, in this world. And so we need to um, be wise, we need to be supportive of Israel, and of bringing the good news to Israel and, and the surrounding uh, peoples. Next week, we'll talk more in uh, specifics about some of the things that are going on in our world regarding dangers to Israel uh, and uh, the need for us to uh, speak into them. But what we understand today is from our statement that uh, Israel is a renewed people, God has given the renewed people a way of life, the Torah, and he's given us a land indeed to dwell in and to live all this out in the presence of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, that you're faithful to your word. And in, com in the coming of Yeshua, Lord, thank you that you assured the fulfillment of your land promise in the coming of Yeshua. Lord, thank you, God, that we can know by your history with the Jewish people that you are indeed a faithful God and you are indeed a covenant-keeping God. And thank you, Lord, that we know that our relationship with you is bound up in the new covenant, which is, which is that covenant that you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that includes a renewed people, a renewed way of life, and the land of Israel. And so, Lord, thank you that when we see the land of Israel today, we can say, I know that God is real. I know that he is a covenant-keeping God. And that against all odds, there is indeed Eretz Yisrael and Kalal Yisrael. There is the land of Israel and there is all of Israel. There is the people of Israel. Am Yisrael, Lord. And so, God, may we be encouraged to know that it is because of Yeshua, because of the coming of the Messiah, yes, that we indeed have salvation from sin. But it is also because of Yeshua that we still have a Torah. And it is because of the salvation of Yeshua that we have a homeland, Lord. And may we uh, uh, cherish it and may we protect it and may we desire uh, righteousness in it and may we desire protection from, uh, from the outside, uh, Lord. Uh, righteousness from the inside and protection from the outside. Lord, and we do pray, God, 
that the day would indeed come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Yeshua is the Messiah, when the Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, shall reign. And we pray in Messiah's name.